Let's start Mark chapter 11, and we just want to have an overview of this tonight. And um, we uh, see uh, in verses 1 through 11, Jesus enters Jerusalem. In verses 12 through 14, we're going to look at the cursing of the fig tree. Our fig tree is rebuked. What's our fig tree rebuked for? Well, we'll find that out. Verses 15 through 19, we're going to see the money changers uh, thrown out of the house uh, of God, the temple. Verses 20 down through 26, a message on faith going back to the fig tree. And then the rest is on verses 27 through 33, Jesus' authority uh, is questioned. And so let's go back to verses 1 through 11 as Jesus enters uh, Jerusalem. And uh, that's why I have these here. This is fine print for me. Verse 1, And when they came nigh to Jerusalem unto Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples, and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as you be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied, whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do you this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door, without, in a place where two ways met, and they loose him. And certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye loosing the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. Now, this sounds like a cute little story here, but this is really an amazing prophecy. If it really happened that way, this is an amazing prophecy. I, you and I couldn't even do a prophecy this short if we tried. You know, if I said, go to Hamburg, and, and you're going to see a red pickup truck parked at BJ's with three guys sitting in it, and, and say, hey, uh, we have need of your truck to pick up some supplies for tr- for church. I mean, we couldn't even come up with that and be accurate unless we really, really lucked out. So let's not just pass over these stories like, uh, oh, what a cute Bible story. No, it's really an amazing prophecy. Uh, it, there, it's a very, very short-term prophecy, but we'll also get in a moment here to this story being over 500 years old and uh, being fulfilled by this means. And so uh, we just want to worship the Lord Jesus tonight and uh, see as we are now into Passion Week, the Holy Week, um, his three consecutive years of public service are over. And this is what some people call the triumphal entry. And some people base the practice of Palm Sunday on this story here, although it it really wasn't, uh, wasn't, wasn't really that day, but uh, it's so entrenched in, in religious tradition now, but it really didn't fall on a Sunday. But anyway, uh, all four Gospels have this story. So prior to this, there have only been two stories in 33 years that have been in all four Gospels, and now you're going to see all kinds of stories in what's called Passion Week or Holy Week, beginning with this, the triumphal entry. Now, we're used to the triumphal entry of Jesus 
into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and the palms and the clothes being spread out along the way that we're going to read about here. But let's not forget that first part. That's pretty amazing. Uh, where Jesus says, uh, you know, go into the village over against you and as soon as you're entered into it, you're going to find a colt tied. Uh, no one's ever sat on this colt before. Loose them and bring them. And if anyone says, hey, what are you doing? Uh, just say that the Lord hath need of him and straightway he will send him hither. That's a, that's a good obedient uh, whoever this person was, the Lord hath need him. Okay, go ahead and take him. We've never used him yet, but go ahead and take it if the Lord has need of him. And uh, off this colt goes uh, with them. I don't know if they ever got him back or uh, how that worked. but uh, And sure enough, it happens exactly the way Jesus said, and I'm sure those two disciples remember that as a faith-building moment in their life. Verse 7, and they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him, on the colt, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And so we see a lot of euphoria. It's a little bit misdirected, a little bit earlier, because uh, they, they, were, they really thought that moment was, man, this is where Jesus is going to become the king of Israel, and uh, blessed he that is coming in the name of the Lord. But Luke's account uses the name of the, the word praise. Mark doesn't. But... Luke says they began to praise him and cried, saying, Hosanna, uh, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when we studied praise, this is one example of several in the Bible where uh, we get that letter O from outbursts of joy. Outbursts of joy. Luke calls it praise. Mark doesn't, but Luke calls it praise. So let's remember those four ways of praising the Lord. M, musicians, O, outbursts of praise, Hosanna, under the Son of David, Hosanna to the name of the Lord. Just an outburst. And then S stands for singing, and T stands for thanksgiving. And so here's an example. And uh, so he comes in. Now this is a prophecy of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse number 9, we have this written 500 years before this day. Actually, 497 question mark is what Thompson's chain reference Bible says. But let me read Zechariah 9 and verse 9, almost 500 years before this. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And so, there's two animals in the prophecy and there's two animals in the Gospels, not in Mark's account. But apparently... It's kind of like, I don't know if you ever watched the Kentucky Derby or anything, and 
you got the horses racing, and then as soon as the race is over, they join another horse to the, the other horse. And there's two of them going by. You ever notice that? They, they say that comforts each other. And so this colt, no, no one's ever sat on this colt before except Jesus. And another animal was brought alongside. And I guess mankind has just known that for centuries, that, that you kind of relax an animal by having another one of its kind uh, walk along next to it. But the point is, Zechariah mentions this, of course, by the Holy Spirit. This is not Zechariah saying, hey, let me tell you what I think is going to happen. This is the Holy Spirit saying, let me give Israel a sign that they can't miss of who their king is going to be someday. And as far as we know, prior to this story in Mark chapter 11, and since, no one has ever marched into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And uh, so the Jews uh, today, if you should be talking to one, say, have you ever seen anybody else ride into Jerusalem on a donkey uh, and be declared to be the king of Israel? And of course they haven't. Um, But you can see this trail still going up into Jerusalem, which reminds me, Pastor Seth is organizing a trip to Israel in February, and uh, we got flyers uh, coming by Sunday. The problem is you've got to have your first $200 in by the end of August, so think about this real quickly. But they're going with Brother uh, uh, Jim Green and one of our missionaries, and I won't mention his name. But um, you, you, you'll have a wonderful, wonderful tour of Israel, and, and if you get the chance and you can do it, by all means do it. Uh, but, but I remember where they took us to the the walls in Jerusalem there, and they said this is where Christ rode up into Jerusalem. It was a really moving moment. They said, don't go up there, but I did anyway. And uh, verse 11, Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out of Bethany with the twelve, and he's going to come back. <laughs> he's going to come back, believe me. He looked around all things, and, and there's maybe a, there's a little bit of a... a uh, lesson for us is that we don't have to react initially. Uh, Jesus is going to come back and cleanse the temple, but I'm sure when he saw what he saw, he could have lost his cool and lost his temper and taken care of it right then, but that would not have been a very good testimony. And that might be uh, some good advice for us, uh, too, is to, uh, you know, uh, if we see a situation that we don't really agree with it might not be the time to attack it right that moment uh, as he he will cleanse the temple but in verse 11 he just looks around upon what he sees and we know later he did not like what he saw but uh, it's good to for us to just cool down a little bit before you just you know launch and say something to somebody or it's just uh, anger. It's like that shotgun we talk about sometimes. It only has to go off once to kill somebody. And our anger is the same way. Well, let's look at our second story. The fig tree rebuked in verses 12 through 14. And on the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came. If haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. 
And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat from thee, eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. So we see this fig tree is rebuked and cursed. And uh, we see that Jesus came trying to find some figs on it. There were none. It wasn't even time for figs. But I'll give you my opinion. I, I believe that Jesus saw that there was no even potential for this fig tree to ever bear any fruit. And so it was rebuked and cursed and said, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And uh, we have a tree at our house, an orange tree. Uh, it never bears fruit. And I keep saying to my wife, what do we keep this thing for? And um, it's about this tall. And years ago, we used to get little tiny oranges on it. It was cute. It was ornamental type of thing. Now it's nothing. And she says, well, it just looks green. And uh, that's nice, you know, in the wintertime when there's, everything's bare and just to bring it in and you just... So it just looks green. But she knows and I know there's absolutely no potential of that thing ever uh, bringing forth fruit. And uh, so personally, I just want to get rid of it. But she wants to keep it, so we, we keep it. And, uh, but you know something? It doesn't matter what season it is. Jesus should find fruit or the potential of fruit. And the fig tree has two pictures. There's two pictures of the fig tree in the Bible. Uh, one is that of individuals. In Luke, uh, that is individual people, save people. You and I, you know, it might save your life to bear some fruit once in a while. In Luke 13 and verse 6, Jesus said a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of the vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I have digged about it, and dung it, or fertilize it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. And so a fruit tree, or fig tree rather, is a picture of individuals who are planted in God's vineyard who should be bringing forth fruit for the owner of the vineyard. And uh, if it doesn't bring forth fruit and it has no potential of ever bringing forth fruit, the owner of the vineyard says, cut it down so we can put something else in its place that will bear fruit. It's just cumbering the ground or it's wasting space in my vineyard. And um, there, are, there is something in the scripture called a sin unto death. The Bible says we shouldn't ask for it. It's in 1 John chapter 5. You shouldn't be, you'd be better off knowing, not knowing what it is. But there is an interesting study you can do in the Bible of sins unto death, and one of them is fruitlessness. And I, I don't know, I'm not the judge, but I think I've seen, I think I've done funerals for people uh, in my ministry over the years, who the only fruit God ever bore from, from their life was at their funeral. It was the only thing that was ever fruitful was to take them to heaven and let the gospel be preached at their funeral. 
And uh, maybe some people got saved at their funeral. Uh, but they sure didn't lead anyone to Christ nor try. And they weren't a good testimony for Christ or for their church. And uh, I, think, I think God took some of them away before their time just so maybe we could have a funeral and a dozen people could hear the gospel, which is more than that person did in their whole life. That's one picture. As a fig tree represents an individual. There's also another prophetic picture of the fig tree, and that is a picture of Israel. A picture of Israel. Sometimes the fig tree represents uh, Israel. And uh, I believe next week we'll get to... Uh, a portion of scripture where uh, the uh, that is uh, um, described. All right, um, verse fifteen through nineteen. We have our next story: the money changers, and they come to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple. So this is probably the next day, or or maybe it's after two days. I don't remember, but one of the gospel other stories tells us. And began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the temp- tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves <laughs> and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves." And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. And so he looks around in verse 11 at the temple. Obviously, he does not like what he sees. He goes back another day, verse 15, came into the temple, began to cast out. This is the second time. He cleanses the temple. The first time was three years earlier when he was beginning his ministry. And now three years years later when he's ending his ministry, he cleanses the temple. Maybe there's a little picture there. We need to have some cleansing in the temple from time to time. Because we can get used to things that God is not happy with in the house of the Lord. And in this case, they're selling things. They're, they're, They're money changers and everything. And of all things, the religious leaders in verse 18 get upset because you can see where their heart was. Their heart was in the money, not in the purity of God's house, Uh, not in the sanctity of God's house, but in the money they were making. And the love of money is the root of all evil. And so the scribes and the priests heard it and they sought how they might destroy Jesus. Can you imagine that? He cleanses the temple. We say, they say, we got to kill him. Well, they should have said, good, boy, he did what we weren't able to do. The temple of the Lord should be holy, uh, which uh, temple we are. And um, they were astonished at his doctrine. This portion of scripture here where he's cleansing the temple, he's just, I don't know, I think there was something about Jesus sometimes where people were afraid of him physically. I mean, he's overturning tables. He's not letting anyone pass through who's trying to, bring stuff in to sell at the tables. And, and he, scour- he fashioned a scourge one time. He's whipping people. Can you picture that in your mind? I mean, they were just scared. They were running uh, for their lives out of the temple. They were scattering. Man, they were scattering like rats when the lights came on. And it reminds me of 
Psalm 69, verse 9. Verse 8 says, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Now, that's prophetic. His, his, it says his brethren didn't believe on him till after the resurrection. That's a great prophecy. Then the next verse, verse 9 says, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproached thee are fallen upon me. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Jesus had a zeal for the house of the Lord. I hope you'll have a zeal for the house of the Lord. Most people that come on Wednesday do have a zeal for the house of the Lord, but many people take it way too lightly. Jesus didn't. He loved the church and gave himself for it, and that's the body of Christ, of course, that assembles together in one place. The first time he cleansed the temple in John chapter 2, three years earlier, it says when he got done and his disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And so when they saw Jesus cleansing the temple the first time, they said, whoa, this reminds us what the psalmist said. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And boy, I'll tell you, we, uh, we need some zeal. We need some zeal in the ministry. And there's times where you've got to have some cleansing meetings, cleansing preaching, revival meetings, turning from our wicked ways, getting things out of our lives that we become accustomed to, which happens all the time, and come clean before God. And uh, so, what a, what a great... Uh, picture of Christ that we don't usually think about. Most people just think he's some mild, timid, emaciated, feminine-looking, skinny guy. Uh, but there was something about his presence that they, they, they all ran. The psalmist David said, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And behold, the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. Boy, that's a good, you know, a lot of people are just becoming very casual, apathetic, indifferent, complacent about church attendance. It's obvious. It's everywhere. Every, every pastor I know says the same thing. But don't you become, be like Christ. And I should be like Christ and say, hey, that, that's, that's where God speaks to, the, to people. Um, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And I'm going to be there to hear a voice from God. Now we go back to the fig tree in verses 20 through 26. And in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter calling to remembrance saith unto him, Master, Behold, the fig tree which thou cursedst is withered away. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that these things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, 
and ye shall have them. Now turn your sheets over. Spurgeon only has one note on this chapter, and that's in verse 24. It's on the back of your notes. What is his commentary on verse 24? He says this, The text shows us four essential qualities necessary to any great success and prevalence in prayer. First, according to our Savior's description of prayer, there should always be some definite objectives for which we should plead. For instance, a mountain being moved. Jesus spoke of things, what things soever you desire when ye pray. He did not seem to think that God's children would go to, to him in prayer when they had nothing to pray for. A second essential qualification of prayer is earnest desire. For the Master supposes that when we pray, we have something we ask for. James 5.16, it's not in his notes, but it says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Observe third, that faith is an essential quality of successful prayer. Believe that ye receive them. We cannot pray so as to be heard in heaven and answered to our soul's satisfaction unless we believe God really hears and will answer us. A fourth qualification is that an expectation should always go with a firm faith. Believe that ye receive them and ye shall have them. Not believe that you will, but believe that you have received it. Count it as if it already were received and act as if it were already were received. So we need to go to prayer specifically. Ask a specific thing, not just general, and that's one of the faults we have in prayer meetings. God bless the missionaries. God bless the evangelists. God bless the pastor. God bless the church. God bless me. God bless grandma. God bless aunt and uncle. How would you ever know if that prayer is answered when God blesses us all all the time? Uh, but prayer is when we say something specific, you know, specific. Lord, this mountain is in my way, and every one of us has some kind of a mountain, something. Maybe it's a besetting sin, or maybe it's a person that's hindering us, or, or, or something, or some need. And we specifically take that to God. Uh, somebody might need a, a house, and we specifically say, Lord, this person needs a miracle house. And uh, we're, we're specific. And then you have expectation, expectation. Remember that little story about the, four, the two girls with the four pennies? I've told it before. I heard a story about two, four, uh, two girls. Two girls, and they had four pennies. Each of them had four pennies. And the one girl said, I have four pennies. The other girl said, I have eight pennies. And the first girl said, no, you only have four pennies. See, there's four there. He said, no, no. She said, my father said, when he comes home, he's going to give me four more pennies. And so she already counted them. That's expectation, which is what hope is. Hope is beyond faith. Hope is beyond faith. Hope is, is expectation. I have faith God's going to give this to me, and so I'm going to live in hope or the expectation that it's already happened. 
So uh, that's good comment there by uh, Spurgeon, good observation. All right, now back to uh, the other side, verses 20 through 26. So Peter is just shocked. He says, Lord, look at this cursed tree, uh, this fig tree. You just cursed it the other day, and now it's dried up from the roots. I mean, the whole thing is just dead. Jesus says, have faith in God. And almost like in verse 23, he says, that's nothing. The fig tree, if you say to this mountain, be thou removed and be cast into the sea. A fig tree is nothing. And you don't doubt in your heart, but you believe in those things which hath, which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. And so, if you don't doubt in your heart, well, what's, what's the problem there? See, uh, I think next week we're going to get to a scripture where the Lord says, You do err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. The two go together. The scriptures teach us the power of God. The Scriptures teach us God can part the Red Sea. All right? The Scriptures teach us God can raise the dead. The Scriptures teach us God can open the eyes of the blind. The Scriptures teach us God can open the ears of the deaf. The Scriptures teach us God can raise the dead. The Scriptures teach us God can send hail from heaven and help the, the Israel army or whatever. And if you don't know the Scriptures, you won't know the power of God. Or if you just read the Scriptures just to check off your box every day, you're not doing anything. But if you and I read the Scriptures and say, whoa, look what God does here. I mean, you get into the first chapter and it says, and He made the stars also. And we got this new telescope out there that keeps sending us pictures of just amazing things. And the, the Bible just gives it a few words, and He made the stars also. And so we should be seeing the omnipotence of God from the very first chapter of Genesis all through the Bible. That should affect you so that no matter what you or I ask for in our lives, we should think of that as nothing for God compared to the God I have learned about by reading the Scriptures. You do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. They go together. They go together. Well, I think that's next week, but I'm not sure. Um, so a little faith. Now, so the Lord says, uh, verse 24, as, as uh, uh, Spurgeon said, Therefore I say unto you, whatsoever the things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Uh, it'd be nice if it ended there. But as he does so many times with prayer, he always attaches a little caveat called forgiveness. Did you ever notice that? You ever notice how Jesus does that in the Bible? He says, yeah, pray whatever you want to pray. God will move mountains for you. God will do miracles. But if you haven't forgiven anybody, or if you haven't forgiven somebody, you better get that cleared up first. God doesn't give us an inch on this subject of forgiving other people. He doesn't give us an inch. Never does. And so, like many other times in the Scriptures, here comes forgiveness right into the subject of prayer. And when ye stand for praying, verse 25, forgive, if you have aught against any. 
that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. And so, yeah, this thing about prayer, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And what a life a man or woman can have of answered prayer. But boy, you can't. You can't come to God and say, but Lord, you don't know what he did to me, or you don't know what she did to me. Yes, he does. Nobody here in this room has ever suffered the injustice God's Son, Jesus Christ, suffered when he hung on a cross for our sins. Not even close. No matter who it is, no matter what they've done to you, it's not close to what our sins did to someone who is perfect, sinless. And... As soon as they hung him on the cross, his first words were, Father, forgive them. First thing he thought about was forgiving them. First thing. Not last thing when everything else failed. First thing Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The person who probably hurt you or hurt me didn't know what they were doing. Because sin's too stupid to see beyond itself. And they're sinners. Every time I hurt somebody, I, I felt bad afterwards and thought, why, why would I do that? Why would I do that to that person? I'm glad I had a conscience. And uh, that's why people hurt us. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We don't know what we're doing. When we hurt people, talk behind people's backs, destroy their reputation with a few words, hurt them physically or, or whatever, we don't know what we're doing. So Jesus forgave us for being imbeciles. And uh, praise the Lord. Well, this ends in verses 27 through 33. Jesus' authority is questioned. And they come again to Jerusalem. And as they were walking into the temple, there come to them the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Boy, you think these religious leaders, they're such good people. They would be behind Christ 100%, Right? No, they end up being an evil trinity. Not all of them. There were some good priests and scribes and elders. But they have followed Christ around now for two years like pestilent irritants, bothering him everywhere he goes, questioning him, questioning his authority, seeing everything everybody else saw. But boy, religious pride will blind somebody faster than any pride in the world. Watch out for religious pride. What authority do these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? And Jesus answered, Son of them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? I like that. And if we shall say of men, they feared the people. For all men counted John as it was a prophet indeed. And so they answered and said unto Jesus, We cannot tell. We have no idea who gave John this authority. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Neither do I tell you by what authority I do these things. Um, we don't have to uh, answer everybody's questions, especially independent Baptists. You ever think of us? We don't have any conference, we don't have any denomination, we don't have any headquarters. Who gave you this authority? You know, we got Rome, we got the Vatican, or we got the, you know, Missouri Synod of the Lutheran Conference, and we got the, the, uh, the 
PSU, what's that, Presbyterian something. You know, they got their headquarters. Episcopalians got their headquarters. Apostolic Church got their headquarters. Lutherans got their headquarters and everything. Who gave you your authority? Do you ever think of that as us independent Baptists? Well, a bunch of other guys that probably didn't have any authority either. They laid hands on us and so just passed it on down. So, well, anyway, praise the Lord. God gave us our authority. Amen. And uh, he was the one who called us. He's the one who's going to call you to do something special with your life. And uh, uh, just enter into that adventure with God by faith, and it'll be exciting. It'll be an exciting life you live as you attempt great things for God by faith. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word tonight. And uh, thank you for the Lord Jesus. And uh, Lord, we're like a fig tree. You should be able to see at least the potential of fruit in every one of us. Uh, and so, Lord, we pray that, that uh, you would get some fruit from each of our lives. Fill us, Lord, again with your spirit. Help us. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for uh, your teaching, and, and uh, which there's not much of it in Mark, but your actions as a servant. You just cared about people. You ministered and enable us to be like thee. And Lord, there's much for us to do, especially this summer, especially this month of August. So it's going to be a tiresome, exhausting month. But Lord, would you please renew our strength day by day that we might do our best in August uh, to get your word out uh, with opportunities we don't have other times of the year. Bless our fellowship now and even some business this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.